Good evening, everyone. Um, it's um, very, very good to be able to be here tonight. I am incredibly thankful for for God's word. I'm incredibly thankful that we can be together um, and um, just um, learn from from the Lord today. Um, I'm excited for what we're gonna be dealing with. Um, it's very practical stuff, and um, I pray that you'd be able to apply it um, to your life um, as I desire to apply it in my life. So um, really, really a privilege to have God's word and to be able to study it and to be able to spiritually discern it as um, we have the spirit in us. So tonight we're going to be studying Ephesians chapter 5. Probably going to try to get down to verse 21. Um, so Ephesians 5 verse 1 to 21. <clears throat> now um, in chapter 4, as you'll recall, um, we looked at how the body of Christ operates. Um, the various offices we have in the body of Christ. And how ultimately to pursue unity in the church. We also saw the call every Christian um, the call that every Christian must walk worthy of the vocation um, by laying off the old man and by putting on the new man. That's the calling that each Christian has. Now in chapter 5, Paul starts off with a, with a similar train of thought um, as we continue with the practical side of the book. So you'll see in, in, um, in chapter 5 that he says in verse 2, and walk in love. And, um, and he says in verse 1, be followers of God. So he, he continues to, to go with this theme of walking, um, this application of the doctrine that we saw in chapters 1 to 3. And um, so he continues with that train of thought. So the breakdown I want to give for chapter 5 is um, verses 1 to 7 is how to walk in love. So walk in love. And um, by that I mean... The, the idea from that we get from Romans 13 um, and verse 10, where we see that love is the fulfillment of the whole law, in that love is doing good to our our our, our brothers um, and laying off sin. In other words, adhering to God's um, commands. And so, in that way, by doing that, we are loving those around us because they're affected. By the sin or the lack thereof that we do. So verse 1 to 7 is walk in love. Verse 8 to 21 is walk in light. So walk in love 1 to 7. 8 to 21 is walk in light. And essentially what I mean by that is that having the additional revelation um, through God's word and through the spirit needs to change the way we live. Our lives need to be a light to the world because of the additional revelation, the light that has been given us and the spirit dwelling in us. And then verse 22 to 23 is the marriage walk as God intended. So the marriage walk as God intended. Essentially what the Christian marriage should look like. So all of this you can see is very, very prominent to um, our daily application of Christian living. It's how do we walk in love? It's how do we walk in light? 
it's how do we be how 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 do we be a good husband a good wife uh, how do we have a godly marriage so all of this is very very practical he continues with this um, even in chapter six with our walk so i want to encourage you to truly have ears to hear um, what the spirit has to say to us tonight because these are things that are very very applicable so before we get into verse one let's have a word of prayer father i thank you once again lord um, for this time we have thank you that we have your word open in front of us lord i i do look forward to hear from you i thank you that um you've taught me so much um um, already in, in, in this in this book and in this passage that we're going to look at tonight. And I ask, Father, that you please guide us. Um, please help us to to see what you want us to see. And, Lord, um, to change what we need to change. And Lord, may, we, may we better serve you, Lord, because of the truth that you revealed to us um, in tonight's lesson. Lord, help us to, to be followers of you. Um, help us to walk in love. Um, Lord, we want to be children of light. Um, and so, Father, I ask for your grace. I ask, Lord, that your spirit would guide me and everyone that's listening, Lord, that you would please help them also to, to listen and to, and to understand and um, that you would be glorified through the fruit that comes from this lesson. We pray this and we ask for your guidance in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So, Ephesians 5 and verse 1. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. Now, this is a a very simple statement. But essentially, because you are children, now follow as if you truly belong in the family. If you are a child, then look like it. That's all that Paul is saying. He's saying, be therefore followers of God as dear children. We know that we've been adopted, we are accepted in the beloved, as we saw in Ephesians chapter 1. And because of that, we are now children. And because of children, let us follow in the footsteps of our example. Verse 2 says, Love uh, um, and walk not in love, sorry, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God. For a sweet smelling savor. Now, walk in love. That's such a, I want to say, general statement. And love does not mean what people water it down to mean these days. Because um, if we truly apply biblical, biblical love in our lives and how we deal with others, we would end up a lot more like Christ than many Christians look today. You see, we are to be, we are to walk in love as he loved us. So that implies we need to take on the way Christ loved. And that means we need to love biblically. We need to love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. So if we are to follow that example of love, not because we are anything special, but because of what Christ has done for us, the love he has shown to us, and we are supposed to be imitators of that love. And because of that, if we apply that, our lives would look drastically different um, just by applying the love um, of Christ 
and and um, so many Christians, I think, lack that. Um, and I certainly do lack that to the extent that Christ did. And so the more and more we shape off this love, the more we will become like Christ. If I am to follow the example of Christ, then I should offer myself up as an offering on behalf of others so that they may achieve salvation. You follow? If I am to follow the example of Christ who sacrificed himself for me, I am to sacrifice myself on behalf of others for their salvation. Um, that would be an expression of true love. The sacrifice for sin obviously has been made through Christ, but we can give our lives as a living sacrifice, as we are called to do in Romans chapter 12, a living sacrifice. Um, and um, sacrificing it to the will of God and what he wants us to do. And that attitude of a willing and devoted service to him is a sweet smell. In other words, it's a good and acceptable offer um, to God. That's why it says at the end of verse, which um, an offering and a sacrifice to God is, is for a sweet smelling savor. And so that is a life, a living sacrifice laid down for him is a sweet smelling savor. Verse 3. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not once let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. Verse 3 is essentially the opposite of what verse 1 and 2 is dealing with. Verse 2 is all about us walking in love. Um, as we follow the example of Christ's sacrifice. That's what verse 2 is saying. Verse 3 is saying, is actually all inwardly focused and giving yourself all your fleshly desires. So the one looks at Christ and imitates <clears throat> his sacrificial love for the world. The other one looks inward at ourselves and our desires and gives only what we desire. So it's completely the opposite. Fornication in verse 3, that is sexual sin outside of marriage. The word, the Greek word is porneia, where you can hear where you get the word pornography from. So it's any sexual perversion, um, any sexual lust, any sexual sin. Um, so that is fornication. Then we have all uncleanness, um, that is any other sexual sin or any impure work of the flesh. Now you can read a bunch of impure works or I want to say fruit of the of the flesh in um, Galatians chapter 5, just before you get the fruit of the Spirit. And there you can get a list of essentially the, 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 the all uncleanness. This is just these lusts of the flesh that you give yourself to. And then there's, um, in verse 3, it also speaks of covetousness. Covetousness is an insatiable need or greedy desire for more. An insatiable need or greedy desire for more. Now that can be more money. It can be more stuff. It can be more fame. It can be more sexual pleasures. It can just be, it's just an insatiable. It's the opposite of contentment, I want to say. And so that's why in verse 5, you'll see, have a look at Ephesians 5 verse 5. It says, for this you know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater. Covetousness is connected to idolatry. In Colossians 3 verse 5, we see exactly the same thing. Covetousness, which is idolatry. 
So when you lust for things and you feel like you need to have that thing and without that thing, without that thing that you are pursuing, whatever it may be that's not holy, that is an idol to you. And the only thing that should take that position in your life is the true God, um, not any other idol. So don't make an idol of the things that you desire in this world. So, and then Paul says um, in verse 3, as becometh saints. Now that is to say, these things, fornication, uncleanness, and covetousness, this is not becoming of saints. In other words, it is not suited. It is not appropriate among saints. It shouldn't be this way. You shouldn't be covetous, full of uncleanness, um, fornication, all these sexual sins. You shouldn't have that. But Paul even takes it a step further by saying, let it not be once named among you. The Christian and the church of the whole should be distanced from these things. When saints are together, it should not even be mentioned among them. Now, not because everyone is hiding their sin, but because everyone is truly striving for sexual purity, holiness, and contentment. Sexual purity, holiness, and contentment. The opposite of fornication, uncleanness, and covetousness. It is sad to see how the standard set by so many um, Early, sorry, it is sad to see how the standard set by the early church has been eroded over time. May the Lord truly help us step up and be a church that lives according to these things. Purity, um, holiness, and um, contentment. Verse 4 says, Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving thanks. So Paul addressed more, I want to say, the, 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 the deeds that we shouldn't partake in. And now he's talking about our speech. So Paul addresses the speech of a Christian in verse 4. Now, what should a Christian speech sound like? Well, it should be devoid of filthiness. That is, swearing, dirty jokes, insinuations. It should be devoid of filthiness. It should also be devoid of foolishness. Foolishness, um, in the Greek, it's called moralogia. Moralogia, which is moron language. <laughs> moron language. That is speaking nonsense, foolish talk. It should be devoid of foolish talk. It should also be devoid of jesting. Jesting is crude wit. Crude wit. That is to be also to be overly jokey and jokey about or towards someone else. It should be devoid of all such things. Essentially, our speech as Christians should be um, avoid of, I want to say, anything that is not convenient, anything that is not appropriate. That's what it says, which are not convenient. In verse 4. So it should be devoid of anything that is not appropriate. But rather, our speech should be filled with thankfulness towards God and towards others. Towards our brothers and sisters in Christ for what they do, what they are doing for us, for the ministry, 
um, towards God for what he blesses us with, um, the opportunities he gives us, um, his provision, um, just everything that he is his, his faithfulness. We should be filled with thankfulness. And we should also be filled with the opposite of filthiness, foolishness, and jesting. So we should rather be filled with purity and clean speech instead of filthy speech. We should rather be filled with truthful um, speech um, that is filled with wisdom. In other words, thoughtful speech. Speech that has been thought over before it's spoken of. That is not foolish speech. And also, instead of jesting, we should be clean. We should have clean wit. There's nothing wrong with having fun and making joke and having often light conversation. But there's also a time to be serious. But let, let your joke or your, your, your fun in your speech always be clean and right. All right, verse 5, it says, For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. We've actually spoken about most of these um, sinful deeds already in verse 3 and 4. Um, the one that could stand out is the whoremonger. Now, the whoremonger is actually very in line with fornicator in um, verse 3. A whoremonger is a sexually immoral person. In other words, a fornicator. Um, the Greek word for whoremonger is pornos, which is very close to porneia, which we uh, again, you can hear it as the same root word, which is the sexual sin. But let me draw your attention to the end of the verse where it speaks about inheritance in the kingdom of God. Um, notice the verse does not say enter into the kingdom of God. It says, who is an idolater hath any entrance into the kingdom of God. That's not what it's saying. It's saying hath any inheritance in the kingdom of God. Now, Christians can get caught up in sin and that will affect their rewards. We learn this in basic discipleship, but it doesn't affect their entrance into the kingdom. It affects what they inherit in the kingdom of God. Inheritance in the kingdom is a reward based on Christian service. We read that in Colossians 3 verse 24. It says, knowing that of the Lord, you shall receive the reward of the inheritance for ye serve the Lord Christ. For you serve, therefore you will receive the reward of the inheritance. So the inheritance is a reward that we get for service. Entrance is because of our uh, is because of our standing in Jesus Christ. All right, verse six it says, "Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children." Of disobedience. Now, disobedience to God will lead to the holy and justified wrath of God being displayed. Disobedience to God will lead to the holy and justified wrath of God being displayed. Even if this disobedience come from, comes from deception, it says here, let no man deceive you, okay, with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God. So, 
if you're deceived because of someone else's life, someone else's speech, and that leads you to sin or immoral behavior, you will still be judged for your deeds. So let no man deceive you. Think about Eve as an example. She disobeyed God's command when she ate of the fruit. But she disobeyed God's command because she was deceived by Satan. Satan told her, you shall not surely die. So his words deceived her. But at the end of the day, they, was, they still were accountable. And God's wrath came upon the world because of that sin that entered the world. Another example, and this one is very close to home, um, would be any lost person eternally damned to hell because some Christian or false teacher told that person that they are saved, even if their life is filled with verse 3, 4, and 5. So we or any false teacher should never be telling people that they are saved if their life is filled with verse 3, 4, and 5. Because if their life is filled with that, there's reason, not that, and I'm not saying they're lost, I'm saying there's reason to doubt it. And you don't want to tell them, yes, you're saved, don't worry about it, if there's reason to doubt it, because you could be the one deceiving them. And because of you, the deception that you, you cause in their hearts, it can lead to them having a false sense of assurance and ultimately the wrath of God coming upon them. So, brother, sister, can I please caution you against being the judge over other people's salvation? You don't want to tell a person they are saved because they understood and positively responded to the gospel in a moment. But perhaps inside, they're still willingly disobedient. Don't deceive them through vain, that is, empty, meaningless words, words that are not true. So don't be the judge of other people's salvation. Rather, encourage them to be discipled. Join hands with you, or I guess elbows with you <laughs> in this time, but to join hands with you and to grow in Scripture, to bring forth fruit, meat for repentance. Don't go about deceiving them. Um, and with time, right, when you've encouraged them to be discipled, when you've helped them to grow in, and be secure in the Word of God, and with time, by their attitude, um, their attitude towards sin and spiritual things, you'll see whether they have truly repented and are desirous to live in obedience. So, it says here at the end of the verse that wrath comes upon the children of disobedience. A good example um, of this is in salvation. In John 3 verse 36, it says that he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not on the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Now, God said, he who believes on the Son has life. Disobedience 
to what God has said about Jesus and that he is the way, the truth, and the life. So disobedience to that, that he's the only way to God, if you disobey that, the wrath of God comes upon that, that person. So a false teacher can be preaching another Jesus or offering false assurance and hence deceive many. And that teacher will be judged accordingly. But ultimately, each person who has access to God's word needs to take personal responsibility to see whether these things are so and whether they are truly in the faith. So deception is bad and you should never be a reason for that. You should never add to the deception of people. But even those who are deceived have the personal responsibility to find truth. And may we rather be on the side of helping people who are deceived to find truth. Verse 7. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. Now these, the ye is the church in church of Ephesus. Um, in other words, saved people. It says partakers of them. So don't be involved with the same things that these lost children of disobedience are involved in. Don't be involved in the same things. Don't spend your free time willingly hanging out um, around people who are performing deeds and saying things that bring the wrath of God upon them. Because these people through their disobedience and their deeds and through verse 3, 4, 5, because they're doing these things, they're building up wrath um, upon themselves in the day of judgment. So you don't want to be a partaker of those deeds. You don't want to be spending your free time around people who are in willing disobedience to God. The Christian must be different to the world. Verse 8. For you were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Now, this is this is a great verse. Um, it's got... It's got one of those but moments in. You'll remember from, from Ephesians chapter 2. But God. But now. Here it says. Ye were sometimes darkness. But now are ye light in Christ. Now it says. Ye were darkness. Not just you were in darkness. Or your deeds were dark. It says you were Darkness, darkness itself, you were devoid of any light. That's what darkness is. It's, it's devoid of light. Your life was not just filled with external deeds of sin, but you were filled with sin. You know, sometimes people say that you are, um, you know, hate this sin and not the sinner. And I, I get what they're saying. And there is, there is truth to it. But be careful. Because out of the abundance of the heart. The mouth speaks. Right? And so we were darkness. Not just we did dark things. We were darkness. That's why it's not just about changing your deeds. Adding some good deeds to you. It's internal. You need to change. You need to be reborn. You need to be. The light needs to come inside of you. 
Jesus Christ. And that's why it says, but now, because Christ has come and made his abode in you, you are light. Because Christ has come and made his abode in you, you are light. And since Christ is the light, there is no more darkness in you. You see, that's the beauty of our standing in Christ. When the light comes in, it drives out all the darkness and there is no no more darkness in us. It is the light that now shines abroad in our hearts. This is the unchanging spiritual truth for all those who are in Christ. Now, what does this mean practically? Walk as children of the light. So because of the truth of our standing that Christ is now dwelling in us and he is light, what is the practical application of this? Walk as children of light. That is your state. Now, how does this walk in light life look? Well, the rest of the book actually is going to tell us what it looks like. But I want to point you to two things in the immediate context that walking in light implies. And that is that verse 9, it says, For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. That is a life yielded to the work of the Spirit. So a life that is walking in the light is a life that is yielded to the work of the Spirit. And verse 10, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. So a life that is walking in the light is a life that is concerned with doing and discerning what is acceptable to God. So walking in the light will result in two things. A life that is yielded to the Spirit or will require two things. A life that is yielded to the Spirit and a life that is concerned with doing um, what is doing and discerning what is um, acceptable to God. Verse 9, as I already mentioned, but it says, For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. A life yielded to the work of the Spirit will result in you being filled with goodness, righteousness, and truth. This type of life is a light to the world. Goodness, righteousness, and truth. Couldn't we all do with more of that in our lives? Verse verse 10, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. A life concerned with doing and discerning what is acceptable to God. Let me ask, do you, are you concerned with doing and discerning what is acceptable to God? So the point that Paul is making is that the more believers walk in the light, the more their life will change, will bear fruit, and the better their discernment between what pleases God and what displeases God will become. The more you walk in the light, I want to say the more light is shone on your path that you walk on, the better you'll be able to discern what pleases God, what is acceptable to Him, and what is not acceptable to Him. Think of Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. Um, In verse 1, we read, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Then verse 2 says, "And and, And be not conformed to this world, 
but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So in verse 1 of Romans 12, and in verse 2, we affirm what we've been studying in Ephesians 4 and 5, that we need to be a living sacrifice, not conforming to this world, the old man, but rather being transformed in our minds to the new man. So that affirms what we've been studying in Ephesians 4 and now in Ephesians 5. Then verse 2 of Romans 12, the end of it says, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Discerning, in other words, discerning and knowing God's will. Knowing what is acceptable to Him. Okay, That's what we're talking about. Comes from a life walked in the light as He is in the light. Discerning and knowing God's will comes from a life walked in the light as He is in the light. And that's the point that we are making here in verse 10. Now verse 11 says, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Now, I just said that we that discerning and knowing God's will comes from a life that is walked in the light as he is in the light. Now, if you know your Bible, that's a quote from 1 John 1, um, 6 and 7. And walking in the light as he is in the light. And that whole chapter, the whole book, specifically there, is about fellowship. It's about fellowship with God. This passage speaks about our fellowship with God stemming from us walking in light. First John 1 verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And that's why verse 11 says, and have no fellowship. Because if you have fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, you cannot expect to have fellowship with God. You cannot expect to do things that are acceptable to God, to know God's will, if you're walking in the deeds or the works of of darkness. So, practically, when people in your immediate sphere of influence, those who you interact with daily, are trying to involve you in their unfruitful works of darkness, reprove them. That's what it says at the end of verse 11. Reprove them. That is to say, expose them. Point out that you biblically disagree. Obviously, we are called to speak the truth in love when we do that. But also remember, don't take take them on, I want to say. Point them to the Bible, a much higher standard than your opinion. Okay? Reprove them. That is to, um, that, like I said, it's to um, expose them but you can only expose them if you compare them to a standard that is not purely your subjective opinion. Um, so that's how you reprove them. So even if they laugh you off when you do that, or tell you that you're judging them, you have reproved them by comparing their deeds to the highest standard, and they know it. 
and that's why they respond sometimes in the way that they do. Let the Bible and the Spirit convict them of their dark deeds and not your own opinion or your own self-righteousness. But rather, when you see something in people, the people you deal with every day, and these people are trying to get you into their sphere or involve you in the things that they are doing, reprove them, expose them, not by your self-righteousness, but by holding them up against the standard of God's word. All right, verse 12. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. So why should you reprove these deeds? Why, why does verse 11 say reprove them? Because as soon as a Christian goes along with it, they bring shame on the gospel and the church. You have to reprove it because if you don't, you bring shame on the gospel and the church. But Paul takes it further. He says, even if you don't partake in their deeds or their speech, but come home or go somewhere and repeat what dirt they spoke of, you are bringing shame on yourself and your testimony. So don't let those things see the light of day in your life. If they speak of evil things, yes, put it away. Don't let it be, um, don't let it overtake you. Don't let it form part of your life. But even more than that, don't even speak of those things so you don't bring shame on yourself and on the testimony of Christ. Think more, uh, the more you think of these things that you, you hear and you see, um, and the more you, I want to say, the more airtime you give it, the more likely it is to find a place in your heart. And what a shame it is if a Christian's heart is filled with these evil thoughts and deeds. Verse 13, it says, But all things that are reproved are made manifest. So, reproved and made manifest by the light. Now, who is the light in the context that we're dealing with? If you look at verse 8, it says, For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. We are the light if we are in the Lord. So, by us living the way we are supposed to live, we expose the deeds. It's a life changed by the light and now is living in the light. And that light shines on the darkness of the evil deeds. And that is what brings conviction. So, why does it bring conviction? Because it, it makes... It's, I want to say, if a room is a mess... And it's, the light is off. It doesn't look so bad. But as soon as you switch a light on. And you see all the mess. That's when the problems come. That's when people see the true filth. And so that's why they hate the light. So let me emphasize again. You are not on a mission. To make people feel bad. Or point out their faults. That's not our calling. That's not our mission. You're on a mission. As light. To yield to the Spirit and to live in a way that is acceptable to God. Do you see your focus? It's not in, I've got this sorted or I live this way and I'm trying to point out 
the bad in other people's life. It's how do I walk as light? How do I yield myself to the work of the Spirit? How do I make sure that what I do is acceptable to God? That is our focus. And by focusing on that and applying that, the light in us, Jesus Christ living through us, will do the convicting. And so that's what we need to rest in. That's why we need to stand on Scripture and point people to Scripture and not us and our opinions. Verse 14 says, Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. Wherefore he saith. Now, this is a partial quote from um, Isaiah chapter 16 and verse 1. And Paul takes this and applies it to the Christian individual who is not walking in light. The Christian individual who is spiritually inactive, that is to say is dead and hanging out with those who are dead spiritually. So he's calling them out and he say, if you're spiritually inactive and hanging out with those who don't even have the spirit and who live in darkness, he's telling them to awake. He's also speaking to the Christian individual who is sleepy and unwilling to address the darkness in him or herself. If there's darkness in you and you are lax about it, he's calling you to awake, to wake up um, from that sleep. Now, there are two great cross-references to this, and I'd like you to have a look at it. So you can open to Romans, keep your place in Ephesians, Romans um, chapter 13. And um, we're going to look at Romans chapter 13, and then we're also going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So Romans chapter 13 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, we're talking about this awake, awake. Now, in Romans chapter 13 and verse 10, Romans 13.10 says, Love worketh no evil to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And that, knowing the time, that now is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness. Do you see the same theme? Cast off the work of darkness. And let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk, there's our walk, honestly, as in the day, not in rioters, uh, not in rioting and drunkenness, but in uh, not in chambering, but in wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. So it says in verse 11, awake out of sleep. It says, Christ is coming. Stop being so laid back and awake. Put off the evil works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Have a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 33. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 33. It says, Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Awake to righteousness and sin not. For some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Verse 33, the crowd you hang out with um, and 
how, sorry, verse 33 speaks about the crowd you hang out with and um, how it affects the way you act. We saw this earlier in Ephesians chapter 5. And now it says, awake, awake. In Afrikaans, it will say, skrak wakker. Um, align your life with righteousness. There are people around you who don't know God. And you are supposed to be a light for Christ among them. That's why it says in verse 34, Awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. There are people around you who do not have the knowledge of God. And you're lax. You're living in darkness. You're dwelling among the people of darkness. You're not waking up. You're not seeing these people around you. Awake to righteousness. Be a light to those people out there. And then it says, shame on you. If you'd rather live for the approval of men than the glory of the one who saved you. That's why Paul says at the end of verse 34, I speak this to your shame. If we rather live for the approval of men than for the glory of the one who saved us. All right, let's get back to Ephesians chapter 5. Now, how do we get out of this state? Of darkness, the sleepiness, this living in and among darkness. How do you get out of this? It says at the end of verse 14, and Christ shall give thee light. Christ shall give thee light. As soon as you make the decision to stand for righteousness, even if it makes you unpopular, unpopular among the people you find yourself around each day, Christ will come alongside you and give you light. Once you take a stand, God will start to use you for his glory. Your heart will be filled with the peace of God. And often he will give you some light in the form of a friend with whom you can be light. Because we're talking about taking a stand here. We, sp- we saw in the verses before this how we are to not partake in these deeds. We are to separate ourselves. We are to reprove these works of darkness. And that's going to make you unpopular. So if you take a stand, Christ will come alongside you, give you light, give you revelation of how to do it and make you light to those people. But often he will give you a friend who is also walking in the light to take hands with and to um, walk on this path. That has certainly been true in my life and i praise god for that verse 15 see then that you walk circumspectly not as fools but as wise so let me define two words and then we'll look at the verse again so circumspectly that is to say carefully um so in other words take care when you live the christian christian life to do it with precision and on purpose that's what it means to do it circumspectly not to be careless about it, not to take it lightheartedly. Um, and then it also says wise. Walk, walk circumspectly and not as fools, but as wise. A wise man applies knowledge. He thinks about something before he acts. That's what it means to walk in wisdom. So what Paul is essentially saying in verse 15 is, don't be careless about being a Christian. Do it on purpose and do it right while you're at it. Do it on purpose and do it right while you're at it. Also, think about the way you act and how it affects others and the testimony of Christ. That's the wisdom. Think about it before you act. 
and how it affects the testimony of Christ. Verse 16, redeem the time because the days are evil. Redeem the time because the days are evil. Redeeming the time is making the best use of the time. Stop procrastinating. If you know God wants you to start implementing something, do it. Redeem the time. Do it wisely, but do it. That is redeeming the time. Why? Why should you redeem the time? Well, if it's not clear to you, but first of all, the days are evil. That's what verse 16 says. Redeeming the time for the days are evil. People are perishing and people are falling away from the faith. That's why you have to redeem the time. Make the most of the time that you have. And secondly, I want to say why you should redeem the time is because life is short. In James, James chapter 4 verse 14, um, it says, Where... Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and vanisheth away. Life is short. In Psalm 39 verse 4 it says, Lord, make me to know mine end and the measure of my days. What it is that I may know how frail I am. Behold, thou hast made my days as an handbreadth. And mine age is as nothing before thee. Verily, every man at his best state is altogether vanity. Our lives are short. Our lives are small. Redeem the time. Make the most of it. So this person or that person that is in your current sphere of influence might not be there tomorrow. We never know when the end will be. So make the most. Of every day. Verse 17. Wherefore, be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Following God's will for your life is one way of ensuring that you don't waste time. Verse 16 speaks about redeeming time. Following God's will for your life is one way to make sure that you do not waste time, that you are redeeming the time. Paul goes as far as to say, if you do not understand the will of God, you're unwise. That's what he says in verse 17. Wherefore, be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. It sounds a bit harsh, but Paul is making the point that God has revealed his general will to all of us through his word. So if you call yourself a child of light, but don't read his word and know his will, you are not enlightened and you are unwise. That is the point that he's making. So study his word. See what his will is for all the saints. And if you're faithful in that, he will guide you in the specifics of how he wants to use you. Verse 18. And, do, and be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. I always view verse 18 in light of verse 17. Because being filled with the Spirit is part of the revealed will of God for every believer. Verse 17 speaks about the will of God. And then verse 18 goes into, um, be not, do not be drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. That is to say, you are yielded to the work of the Spirit. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. The, fillet, the, the, fillet. <laughs> the Spirit has full control of your thoughts and deeds. That is to be filled. Now, 
This is also a very practical and insightful verse when it comes to alcohol use. It says, don't be drunk, all right? That is non-debatable. Drunkenness is sin. Not just from this verse, it's clear teaching in Scripture. Drunkenness is sin. But technically, there are occasions in which consuming a little alcohol will not be sinful. Where to draw that line? What is drunk, what is not drunk? Becomes a gray area, a, a vague line. And so I rather stay away from it um, as far as I can. Um, just that's my own personal conviction. But this is not the purpose of the lesson, nor do I believe it's the focus of the verse. Um, so I will... If you want more information about this, I will share the link of a lesson Pastor Mike taught about alcohol use, and I'm sure you'll find it very beneficial. Um, but I want to emphasize that this is not even the purpose, or this is not even the focus of the verse to really address alcohol. The focus of this verse is, but be filled with the Spirit. That's what the focus of the verse is. So don't ask the wrong question. The wrong question is how much and when can I drink alcohol so that it's not sinful? That is the wrong question. The right question is, am I filled with the Spirit? Or does drinking this wine detract or add to my spirit-filledness? You see, the emphasis is being spirit-filled. And so as much as drunkenness is a sin and maybe consuming a little alcohol um, won't be sinful. That's not the question. That's not the, the focus. The focus is, am I spiritful? And is this detracting or adding to my spiritfulness? Also, don't deceive yourself. Staying away from alcohol does not lead to spiritfulness. Don't look at the deed and say, I don't drink alcohol, therefore I am spiritful. That's also not what the verse is saying. So, the focus is be spiritful and then let the deeds flow from that heart that is yielded to the spirit. I will share the link of the message on alcohol after the lesson. All right, verse 19. It says, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. So, first thing you need to notice that this flows... From verse 18, verse 18 doesn't have a full stop, and verse 18 to 21, between those verses there is no full stop. This is one idea. This is all in connection with what the will of God is. It's all one sentence. Hence, I believe verse 19 to 21 summarize the immediate personal consequence of being filled with the Spirit. That's what verse 18 is speaking about, filled with the Spirit. So what is the immediate consequence of someone who's filled with the Spirit. Verse 19. Joyful singing and praise to God. That's verse 19. Verse 20. A thankful heart, giving thanks always for all things. Verse 21. Submission and service to one another. We see that in verse 21. So those are the things that flow out of a heart that is surrendered to the Spirit working um, or a heart that is filled with the Spirit. Now, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. 
all three of these play a role in public and personal worship. I would like to quickly speak on each of these. So Psalms um, is Psalms, like the book of Psalms, that has been put to music um, and was sung by the Jews in the Old Testament um, and also by the early church. And it's even sung by us still today. Think of songs like As a Deer. Um, think of the song Surely Goodness and Mercy. These are all psalms that are put to music. Then it also says hymns. Now hymns are songs of praise distinguished from the psalms which exalt God and focus on Christ. Songs of praise which exalt God and focus on Christ. These were written and still and are still written by true Christians and have a high scriptural content and are generally poetic in the way they sound. That's a hymn. And then you have spiritual songs. Any song that can edify you spiritually. That's a spiritual song. Any song that can edify you spiritually. Now, this is often based on personal preference and taste. Um, what edifies one person's spirit might not edify, edify the other. Now, I'm not talking necessarily about um, the truth of the song. It, it might be genre. It might be anything else. But it's something that edifies, something that still is biblical and edifying. So the first thing that will flow from a heart that is full of the Spirit is singing. <laughs> and it says, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And it says, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. So even if you don't have a good voice, you can still make melody in your heart. So is your heart, then it will definitely lead to um, the singing and making melody in your heart. Verse 20, giving thanks always for, the, for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the second immediate personal consequence of being filled with the Spirit is giving of thanks. In Philippians 4 verse 6, we read that be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In Colossians 3 verse 17, and whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Giving thanks to God and the Father by him. And your attendance verse for tonight, 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 18. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 18. In everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. So a Christian's heart and focus must be thankfulness. We know that it is his will for us. Our prayer, our speech, our deeds need to be full of thankfulness. Everything we desire to have needs to be surrounded with thankfulness for what we do have. Every situation we find ourselves in, regardless of how difficult, needs to be surrounded with thanks. This is easier said than done. And we often fail to thank God, even when things are going well. But the more we yield to the Spirit and let Him fill our hearts and thoughts, the easier it becomes to thank God in and for everything. Because you can thank Him, or let me say you thank God 
in everything because, one, you trust Him more. You know He's in control. Two, you know to which end He works. He wants to conform you more to the image of His Son. And that's why through trials, He will do that. And then also, you thank God because your thoughts are directed to God and His grace. Praise and thanks become natural speech. So let's all strive to help each other strive towards this way of life filled with thankfulness. The last verse for tonight, verse 21, submitting yourselves to one another in the fear of God. So the third and last immediate personal consequence of being filled with the Spirit is submission. I want to be a blessing to you. That's what it means in its broader context. To, to be submitting to one another is to say, I want to be a blessing to you. In 2 Corinthians 4 verse 5, it says, We preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. So why should a Christian approach relationships um, in, with a submissive nature? And you'll see that this submission, this nature, in all relationships flows through our marriage. We see that. We see it in our relationship with believers in, in Ephesians 5. In Ephesians 6, we see it in parenting. We see it in our workplace to our masters. And um, so we see that throughout as this submission. Now, why should a Christian approach relationships in this way? Well, firstly, out of the fear of God. It says, verse 21, submitting yourselves to one another in the fear of God. The believer's continual reverence for God is the basis for submission to others. No Christian is inherently superior to any other. We are all equal before God. If that's the truth, how can I then go and elevate myself and think that an other should serve me? Rather, I should humble myself and serve. And that brings me to my second point of why a believer should approach relationships like this. Because a believer should follow the example of Jesus Christ. So firstly, out of reverence to God, fear for Him, and just respect for who He is and who we are, how can we elevate ourselves? And then secondly is we, um, we submit to one another because we follow the example of Christ. In John 13, where Jesus washes the disciples' feet, He tells them that we should follow the example that He set for us and how that the Master is a servant. And so we should also take on that same um, even though Jesus had higher authority than the disciples, he ministered to them. That is humility. That is the example we are to follow. So why should a Christian approach relationships with a submissive nature? Out of reverence for God and the example of our Savior. Amen. Up to there for tonight and next week we will continue. All right, let us pray together. Father, Thank you so much um, for this wonderful lesson, Lord. There's so, so much that we can apply to our lives. Lord, please help us to. Lord, may your spirit have free course in our lives. 
come. Lord, we want to be children of the light, as we know we are um, spiritually, Lord, but may we walk as children of the light every day. May we walk in love. May we rebuke, uh, reprove the evil works uh, of darkness, Lord, in a way that, that pleases you. May we discern and seek what is acceptable to you. And may we walk according to that, Lord. Please, please come guide us. Thank you for this time. I do praise you, Lord, that you meet with us. Lord, I ask that you please bless this evening and help us to apply what we learn today um, in our days tomorrow, day tomorrow and the weeks to come, Lord, um, that we would be image bearers and light bearers for you and um, that it would make a difference in this world that is filled with darkness. We pray this and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.